0: well we've talked about the um u.s japan technology alliance third offset and its relation to third offset in general terms now let's get down to sp- some specifics uh what we want to talk about now is some of the actual technologies and the ways of acquiring those technologies that will make this u.s japan technological and defense trade cooperation a reality uh, and we are very honored and very pleased to have with us as our – I guess you could say – second keynote speaker, uh, the distinguished Dr. Hirokazu uh, Hokazono, who is deputy commissioner and chief defense scientist at the Acquisition Technology and Logistics Agency uh, in the Ministry of Defense of Japan. Uh, He was appointed to that position uh, in October 2015. At the same time as uh, Atla, as we refer to it, actually came into came into existence for the first time. Dr. Hokozono joined the Japan Defense Agency, uh, which was reorganized as the MOD in two thousand seven. In nineteen eighty one, he was assigned to Technical Research and Development Institute, and has been engaged in re- was engaged in research and development of defense equipment pertaining to guided missile systems such as infra- infrared sensors and firing control. In 2009, he was named Director of Technology Policy Planning Division at the Bureau of Finance and Equipment at MOD, which included a focus on international technology cooperation with foreign countries, including uh, presumably the United States. Uh, he was also appointed to Director General, uh, post of Director General for Technology minister's secretariat in September of 2013. Uh, Dr. Hokazono studied electrical engineering at Keough University and obtained his doctorate in 1992. So we have with us a guest who will be able to speak to us, both at a technically proficient level with regard to these issues, but also the larger strategic issues confront Japan's new acquisition and, and logistics agency and the Ministry of Defence at the same time. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Hokozono.
1: Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you, kind introduction for me. Uh, At first, I'd like to express my sincere appreciation for inviting this splendid seminar for the first time. Uh, Recently, utilization of advanced technology to defense equipment and operation is globally vital for the national security due to the high speed of technological innovation. Therefore, the theme of this session, the role of science technology for Japan's self-defense forces, be very critical. And the seasonal, seasonal issues, I think. Actually speaking as uh, about more than 20 years ago, I was assigned the uh, deputy director of Bureau of Finance, Japan Defense Agency at that time. Uh, the mission, my responsibility was uh, to promote an international cooperation with the United States at the first early stages. Maybe that at that time that uh, the secretary for Department of Defense. Mr. Perry started the Perry Initiative. It's, uh, in, in the other words, a technology for technology initiatives. American decided to uh, transfer the, any technology to, to, to Japan by money, like uh, uh, license productions. At that time, uh, we are very afraid that uh, this is as if that it would be uh, it were that uh, revisit of the Admiral Perry on board the black uh, battleships. Out of major error, so that's uh, what we can do anyway to struggle to promote the uh, the international uh, cooperation with the United States. But as you know very well, that due to the very very strong uh, three principles on export control of Japan, uh, maybe that uh, I am I am very regret that most of my work was not completed successfully. Uh, well, what well, we can say at that time to the United States, due to the strict uh, three principles, we can do this, we can do that. Maybe that American counterpart very uh, has a very has a very frustration for us. That. But I think the situation is very completely different. Uh, maybe uh, main, mainly due to the uh, new uh, tri- equipment and technology uh, transfer policy. Established in the last two years. So today I'd like to explain about the new, uh, uh, st- uh situation of the, uh, uh Japan, uh, uh, technology and equipment policies today. Can you? Well, first, I'd like to talk about the security, severe security environment surrounding Japan. As, new, as you know very well, our security environment becomes much more severe in current days. North Korea continues to develop nuclear weapons, various ranges of ballistic missiles, among which North Korea tries to launch from submarines. Also, Russia revitalized their activity and remodernized their equipment such as development of space fighter. China is increasing and expanding their activities in the South China Sea, the West China Sea, and these air spaces. It also tries to fill the technology gap by developing advanced weapons, such as anti-ship ballistic missiles, stealth fighters, and the UAV. They also tries to strengthen their A2AD capabilities. If we do not adopt appropriate, Uh, Defense technology policy there is a risk of losing technology superiority of the US and Japan Due to these severe security situations the increase of self-defense force operations such as ISR the self-defense force has to be more effectively effective resilient resilient and suitable Therefore, we are honestly dedicating to force development by procuring and developing (laughs) advanced weapons. We call this action as building a dynamic joint defense capability. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Of course, our force development is is not limited to importing advanced equipment, mainly from the United States. I will introduce several examples in DG's effort in this slide. Cargo aircraft, the C-2, has the third times payload and the fourth times range as existing the C-1 aircraft. And it will drastically enhance Japanese capability of aerial transport. Majuba combat vehicle is suitable for aerial transport and has a high mobility, especially on the paved road. And also, supersonic ramjet anti missile, so-called XASM-3, is also important effort. And the features is the long range and high cruising speed. In addition, research on advanced technology for future equipment is important. The research on of MIMO radar will lead to the future early warning and surveillance radar system. And the advanced technology demonstrator X aircraft, which conducted the first flight in this April, is one of the important elements that we can hold alternative to develop the future fighters. The fiscal environment for procuring defense equipment has been changing significantly since the end of the Cold War, In the budget becomes tight, and the price and maintenance cost of the equipment becomes expensive, so as in the United States. Under such situations, the Acquisition Technology and Logistics Agency was established by integration of acquisition-related related divisions, which has. 1800 staffs in MOD and Self-Defense Force last October in, in order to increase the effectiveness on defense procuring and R&D. <clears throat> on the occasion of establishing the Acquisition Technology Logistic Agency, we formulated four top policies directions. Uh, These directions pre- represents ATLA's basic missions. So I f- will briefly explain uh, uh, of those policies. The first one is to ensure technology superiority. Needless to say, technological superiority is a key for creating advanced equipment, and it can be source of the bargaining power for international joint R&D project. Therefore, we formulated the, the uh, defense technology strategy in order to strengthen our R&D efforts in this summer, which I explained later in this session. Also, in the context of the third-offset strategy, the importance of game-changing technologies highly put emphasis on we have to avoid technological surprise attack by concerned countries, such as the Sputnik crisis in the era of the Cold War. The second is promoting the acquisition reform to cope with severe budget limitation and upheaval equipment cost. Proper project management throughout the life cycle is essential. And of course, the introduction of the advanced methodology for project management is important. The third one is international cooperation on technology and equipment. After the legislation of the three principles on transfer of defense equipment and technology in 2014, the expectation for cooperation with Japan by other countries is increasing. We want to utilize this momentum and expand defense cooperation with allied countries, and those countries we can share the common values to contribute the stability of international security situation. Finally, AT area tries to maintain and strengthen the domestic defence production and technological basis. In order to keep the technological superiority and keep the capability to produce advanced equipment suited for Japan's geo- geopolitical futures, maintaining sounding maintaining sound domestic defence industries vital. Next, here I'd like to expand briefly in the recent situation of the basic national policies concerning both of civil and defense technologies in Japan. From the perspective of national security, as shown in the left half of this chart, Japanese national security strategy describes that the advanced technology of Japan will contribute, constitutes the foundation of its economic strengths, and defense forces. And also, National Defense Program Guidelines in 2030s clearly states that we should make an effort to utilize dual-use technology positively through increasing cooperation with universities and research institutes. In addition, from the perspective of the basic science technology policies as shown in the right half, the fifth science and technology basic plan indicates, firstly, it is important to make use of Japan's outstanding technological strengths in order to ensure the safety and security. It also mentions that Japan promotes around required for the issues related to the national security in collaboration with relevant government agencies in Japan. I think in the United States, Technological cooperation between DOD and other academia, like a university, as much ever common as uh, much ever common as compared to Japan, but the academia's atmosphere in Japan is slightly different, even now. Maybe after World War II, not a few researchers very reluctant to cooperate with Ministry of Defense on defense technologies. Therefore, this description in policy document is big steps for us, and we want to expand our cooperation with private sectors, including Japanese academia and universities. Then I will briefly explain about technological policies of Ministry of Defense and Acquisition Technology Logistics Agency. We newly published published three strategic documents in this summer. The first document is Japan Defense Technology Strategy. This document shows a basic policy about uh, science technology for defense. It is first time for MOD to publish such strategic uh, documents solely focusing on the technology. The second one is a medium to long-term defense technology outlook. We have predicted the progress of future technology enhancement. And this document shows the technology areas which will be important and can be the game changer in the about next 20 years or so. The third one is a technology research and development vision for unmanned equipment. Research and development vision describes the concept of the future defense equipment and is a concrete R&D roadmap in the coming about 20 years. We already published the first vision for the future fighters in 20, 2010. And this is a second R&D vision for the unmanned uh, 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 system technologies. At first, in the defense technology strategies, we settled the two ultimate objectives in defense technology strategies. The first objective is to ensure the technological superiority. As I pointed out in the previous slide, technology is a key for our post-development and the source of bargaining power in the international cooperation R&D projects. In current days, speed of innovation is quite high, And we have to capture highly advanced technology in order to keep the comparative advantage for concerned countries. The second objective is to deliver superior equipment throughout effective and efficient R&D. Considering the limitations of defense budget and expansion of operations of self-defense force, more cost effectiveness is required. And in this point, technology will play a significant role. In the defense technology strategy, we set the uh, three approaches to achieve such objectives. Namely, they are the technology survey, technology development, and technology protection. Mm -hmm. At first, sufficient technology survey should be done before setting out a specific R&D project. The medium to long-term defense technology is a part of this approach. This outlook shows advanced game-changing technologies we must focus on to obtain them in the about next 10-20 years, and leads to later approaches. The second approach is technology development. We te- intended to acquire defense equipment through our project management, and we speculate what technology was should develop. In addition, we are publishing R&D vision to show the concept and the roadmap for the future equipment. We intend to steadily conduct R&Ds based on the needs of self-defense forces and continue to invest from basic research to development. And also, we started the funding system last year to discover and develop unique researches conducted by such as universities and national institutes and private companies. The third one is technology protection. We, pro- pro- uh, we co- co- cooperate with METI for export control of uh, uh, military technology and sensitive technology under uh, the three principles, principles on transfer of defense equipment and technology. And according to the relevant national laws and regulations, which are compliant to the various global export control regime. In addition, appro- appropriate utilization of control of, in- utilization of control, uh, sorry, in addition, appropriate util- utilization and control of intellectual property is necessary. Next, I'd like to talk about what technology areas we'll put on emphasis on. These are the described in the defense technology outlook. This slide shows unmanned technologies to respond for the, namely, the dangerous, dirty, dark, and deep missions, and to overcome restrictions derived from manned systems. We should attach importance to unmanned technologies. This figure shows the examples of UUV. The large size LDUUV requires technologies such as autonomy and underwater communication and a high performance uh, power pack. Such equipment will reduce the workload of the operators, and it can operate in highly const- contested areas without fearing the risk of casualties. Next is the smart and network technologies. We put importance on artificial intelligence technologies and ICT to process large amount of information rapidly. This figure shows examples of smartification by such technologies. For example, we expect that airborne warning and surveillance capability will be remarkably improved by the fusion of a high resolution uh, camera and AI technologies. As you know, Japan holds advanced technology of sensors such as a high-resolution camera. But the data acquired by the advanced sensor is too big to analyze for human. So AI technology will one of the candidates to process such big data. Next one is the hyper-energy technology areas. Directed energy systems have the capability of instantaneous and persistent engagement and they will enable us to counter the quantitative superiority of enemies. The cost per one shot can be smaller than the conventional missiles and other ordinance. We think the future of warfare will be greatly affected by directed to energy weapon, weapon technologies. This slide shows the r and vision for unmanned equipment. Publishing the vision contributes to increasing the foreseeability for private companies, and it enables companies to invest facilities and human resources effectively in terms of defense technologies. We consider various types of unmanned systems, such as UGV, USV, and UAV, but this document mainly discuss UAV. Especially, we focus on the developing on the of the technologies of autonomy, safety, and data link. We are planning to demonstrate beyond-line-of-sight type UAV under the operational conditions in the next 10 years. For instance, this technology will enable realization of unmanned persistent IS, ISR capabilities, including BMD measures. And also, with ten years later, we are planning to demonstrate fighter-type UAVs, which will be, which will cooperative work with manned aircraft in the various air combat situations. (laughs) Under the new uh, policy of uh, three principle of uh, uh, three principle on transfer of defense equipment technologies. Today, Japan's Ministry of Defense has an arrangement concerning the transfer of defense technology and equipment with six countries, including USA. The agreement includes rules about strict and appropriate control regarding extra-purpose use and transfer to third parties. This international cooperation gives benefits to both countries. Moreover, the cooperation would strengthen the security relationship mutually and resulting contributing contributing to improvement of a global security environment. At first let me show the, some example of specific technology cooperation with the United States. Now we have three ongoing cooperative research projects such as high speed march hard buses and hybrid electric propulsion for combat people and human damage of the uh, uh, jet engine fuel. And also, SM3 blocks a cooperative development project is being successfully conducted to meet the common requirement both US and <coughs> Japan BMD and is successfully becoming almost final phase of the project. And We, we also uh, proactively discuss about the uh, method of the uh, actual uh, co-production in the near future. In addition, the cica Produced of Japan for the PAC-2 missile will be transferred to the to the U.S. soon in the new uh, 3 export policies. This page shows a cooperation with United Kingdom, Australia, India, and the Philippines. With United Kingdom, we conduct three ongoing research projects, including feasibility study of joint new air-to-air missiles, tactical type missiles. And we also have the uh, technical liaison to Defense Science and Technology Laboratory UK from this November. With Australia, we have a joint research project for hydrodynamics about SIPs, and now planning to have the joint much use technology conference in Sydney next year. Also, we are consulting about cooperation in relation to the US to amphibious aircraft with India. And we have agreed with Philippines about transport King Air C-19, which is called tc 90 in Japan, uh, training aircraft. This defense equipment transfer as a package of the support of pilot training and capability building on maintenance under the uh, support of the United States government. As I said, recently, ATRA newly established a basic research funding system, so-called Innovative Science Technology Initiative for Security Program, in 1915. The purpose of this system is to discover, discover unique research by universities, companies, etc., and utilize advanced technology positively. The budget of the funding system was started at the level of $3 million in 2015, We are now planning to expand this funding system from uh, next 2060 fiscal year to exploratory exploratory research, which needs a relatively large investment. For the purpose of this purpose, we are requesting budget to provide about several tens millions dollars each project and uh, $100 million in total. Uh, sorry that s- small letters, but uh, this slide shows a selected of teams in twenty six by the funding system of our Japan Ministry of Defense. We selected ten, propos- 10 proposals this year and nine propos- proposals last year. As shown in this table, we have commissioned basic research to universities, industries, companies in various areas. <laughs> Uh, this is one of examples that uh, 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 we are selected. Among water vehicles promising platform both defense and civil purpose, for instance, we can use several UUVs to, to conduct a surveillance on the vast area of ocean. In such case, we need to supply much energy to many UAVs in simple and convenient method. Though there are some methods for wireless power transmission, it is difficult to transfer power for long range in the sea. In this program, the researchers uh, will explore the possibility of using magnetic field resonance method to, our, uh, uh, to overcome the uh, present issues. I would like to a little bit touch about the complicated relations between academia and defense regarding dual-use technology utilizations. In the US, I suppose, it becomes uh, uh, much more common that universities university do the research by the fund from DOD organizations, such as DARPA. However, it is different in Japan. The background of the situation is like this. The Science Council of Japan, the representative organization of Japanese science community, declared that they would never engage in the research projects which aimed at war in 1950 and 1960s. The declaration in 1967 was triggered by the revelation that the US Army provided funds to Japanese academia at that time. However, because of the start of j funding system, the Science Council launched the uh, committee on security and science this year to discuss how to revise the relationship between security concerns and science should be under the change of the security environment of Japan. <laughs> Lastly, I'd like to explain the technology uh, control. To maintain the technological superiority, we must prevent a technology leak to concerned countries. Now, we actively cooperate with the Export Control Administration in METI, Japan about transfer of advanced technologies and appropriate apparatus in sensitive technologies for national securities. In addition, ATRA continues to join and contribute to the discussion at the international export control regimes such as Wassenaar arrangement and also actively have the discussion with a related organization such as the DTSA in the United States DOD. In summary, the security environment surrounding Japan has become increasingly severe. In such situation, we consider strengthening science and technology capability is one of the vital issues for Japan's national security. Thus, we formulated Japan Defense Technology Strategy for the first time to enhance the technology capability. And we will propose, pursue technological superiority and superior, superior equipment through various approaches such as international corporations. Thank you very much for your patience to this, this <laughs> in my presentation. Um,
0: <clears throat> thank you very much, Dr. Hocazono. Now, in the next, oh, 40 minutes or so, uh, our other three panelists and discussion will focus on the types of technologies that we can sort of see that would be helpful from the point of view of self-defense. Uh, certainly, if you're trying to figure out what a potential foe is planning to do, one of the important requirements for that is being able to see what he's doing. Uh, And these days, being able to see from a 24-7 perspective is one of the goals and one of the essential goals in moving forward with how we develop those kinds of systems that provide early warning and provide means by which we can keep track of what potential foes are up to and what they're doing. Now in this regard, we have our, our next speaker, Chris Pearson, who is currently the Vice President of Strategic Development at General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, where he's been for six years. Uh, prior to coming to General Atomics, Chris served in the Air Force for nearly 24 years, retiring as a colonel, and completed staff tours at Headquarters Air Force in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Chris. Thank you,
3: Dr. Herman. I'll just stay seated. Or we'll sure, go them. ahead. Okay. We like? Good. So um, I want to thank Dr. Herman, Mr. Miller, and the Hudson Institute for the opportunity to speak here today. I uh, enjoyed your remarks, Dr. Hakuzono, <laughs> as well. Um, It's really important, I think, in the context of both the cooperative and strategic relationship between the United States and Japan, as well as the geopolitical and economic importance with managing the rise of China, China both as a regional power and even as a global power. And I think the key theme here of technology is a qualitative advantage. Maintaining that technological edge is so important to the security of, of both our countries. So I'm going to give you a very limited perspective on General Atomics, and you know, we're a very niche capability, but I think a very <coughs> important capability strategically, which is uh, ballistic missile defense. Um, General Atomics, as many of you know, is a technology company. We've been uh, pretty disruptive in the industry uh, uh, not so much by pure research, you know, we we are we innovate by integration, so we take existing technologies. The Predator itself uh, was a game-changer in the 1990s, uh, weaponizing it, and then what it's come to uh, mean in the war on terrorism today has been just really a revolutionary, I think, in military affairs. Um, you know, the, the key thing that the Predator really brings, or the UAV in general brings, is persistence and low cost. So, um, what I have here is a few slides to describe the, uh, the system itself and then just a general philosophical discussion about what UAVs mean. I think, uh, Dr. Kripenovich Krupen- uh, made an interesting comment earlier when he talked about airplanes being introduced in the early uh, 20th century, uh, first as observation platforms and then growing into other capabilities like pursuit, uh, bombing, uh, naval attack, naval strike, things like that. I think we're at the cusp of a, a breakthrough like that with UAVs as well. Um, General Atomics in particular has been in a very niche uh, counterterrorism capability in a permissive environment, but we're at the, at the dawn of a new era of autonomous systems, uh, not necessarily completely autonomous with artificial intelligence, but really improving the productivity of the individual operator. So the aut- autonomy in the system with a man on the loop or a man in the loop, uh, what, what the autonomous systems will do as, a, say, a loyal wingman or as an outrigger to uh, larger platforms like an AWACS or a rivet joint, Um, You know, it's, it's, and then then swarming UAVs, as you disaggregate capabilities into smaller aircraft, uh, it opens up tremendous possibilities with the way that you employ air power. We could talk for hours about that, but I I won't get into that. So, if I could, next slide here for my control. So, General Atomics, we've been the world's benchmark for UAVs. Uh, uh, Very fortunate to be in a, uh, a niche capability, almost uh, a sole source, non-competitive for the last uh, decade or so with, with the war on terrorism. Uh, the environment's changed, uh, especially as we grow into new mission areas, whether it's maritime surveillance or ballistic missile defense. Uh, re- really have to uh, stay proactive and uh, – Keep innovating. Um, agility is one of our our core tenets. I think in the company, uh, we're. Uh, I, I would hope to. Th- I would like to think we're kind of a poster child for the third offset, where we uh, really try to stay agile. Uh, the DoD has Department of Defense has struggled with um, the procurement process and staying agile, and they've kind of short circuited it with things like JADO for counter IED capability or the Strategic Capabilities Office for bringing out new capabilities faster, almost to get around the DOD 5000 uh, uh, cumbersomeness. But at the same time, there's an importance to that. So we we always have this struggle inside our company between innovating and staying agile and and being responsive and then normalizing the program. So so you want the rigor of a normal program, but you want the speed of a a quick reaction capability. And there's a healthy tension there, to say the least. So with the um, Predators. We, we, Predator's family of aircraft. It's not just the Predator. It's the Reaper. It's the Guardian. It's the Avenger. Uh, We maintain about 70 caps, uh, 24-7 combat air patrols, mostly, of course, in the Middle East today. Um, But it's a really unique uh, way of employing because the people flying them are actually in the States using satellite communications. Um, And and if you, when you separate the cockpit from the aircraft. It allows you to be very dynamic in how you task and fly the missions. You can start the mission and end the mission with completely different crews. You can reassign a mission dynamically to, uh, let's say, you have somebody that's specialized in search and rescue, or or there's a a particular mission that needs a a, a special uh, expertise. You you can dynamically reassign those in flight. And um, the amount of data that we collect we'll talk about big data analytics here shortly but it's it's almost overwhelming for the operator how, how do you operationalize all this data that's coming in and turn it into actionable intelligence that, that's another challenge as well so we're, we're guilty of providing that overwhelming data and i think machine to machine processing and multi-infusion will be important capabilities so i mentioned the long endurance that, that was really the game changer uh, having a 24 7 Persistence, that gives you a pattern of life. Uh, that same persistence will be important for ballistic missile defense because you have that 24-7 early warning, and you can uh, get the <laughs> indicators of warnings for strategic warning as well. Uh, mission flexibility with uh, modular systems and, and payloads that you can reconfigure mission by mission. Uh, that's very important as well. And then the best value, I, I think if you look at the cost of a unmanned aircraft, um it's not really apples and oranges. You can't compare a MQ-9 or a Guardian to f F-35, but it's really an order of magnitude less expensive. When you operate a UAV, I think the Air Force uh, charges about $5,000 per flying hour is what they figure the cost is. So it's, it's really a, an affordable uh, weapon system. And then from a operational perspective, kind of strategic as well, you're not putting uh, human life at risk. So so there are are ways to de-escalate situations or to do those dumb, dangerous, different missions where you're you're not going to put a pilot or an aircrew at risk. I think another very important feature of the UAV. So what I'll talk about specifically now and just dive into this for a few minutes is ballistic missile defense. If you think of uh, a threat, say, from North Korea or something like that, having the the situational awareness to detect first the buildup to a launch or even the launch itself and being able to uh, react to that is a capability that the persistent UAV can, can really provide so these are unclassified slides uh, uh, screened and redacted and vetted for public release um, I'll, I'll say that we have a good relationship with MDA and there there's some other technologies that that um, we could talk about in a, a different forum. But what this is is a, a stereoscopic method of using two aircraft with very precision timing, uh, very good angular uh, tracking to uh, detect a, a launch and the, uh, provide that data to a like the Aegis system where it could uh, defeat the threat with the SM3 missile or you know other, other parts of the system. It's just one part of the system, but a very important uh, critical enabler. And um, what the UAV allows you to do is get that look. I think I have a slide here. Coming up, okay. We, we just talked about that detection and tracking with the stereoscopic, and um, all enabled by robust, secure, resilient communications. Um, this is not necessarily a permissive environment. The, the, the rogue, rogue launch from a uh, um, Korea would be very different than a than a salvo from uh, from China or or a you know a high end threat. So um, having that resiliency and, and the reliability and the assurance that your data links where your autonomous algorithms will be able to to work in this environment is extremely critical. And um, what the uh, UAV does, especially for the low trajectory threat, something that has a low apogee that's maybe not even exo-atmospheric, it it allows you to see beyond the horizon. And uh, what you see here in this chart on the right side is is kind of the, the radar lobe detection range. So by getting forward and elevating, you can see over the curvature of the Earth and actually do a launch on warning. So uh, it gives you uh, instead of maybe one or two engagements against a threat, you could have multiple engagements and you can get a much more precise tra- track early on uh, t- to give you that higher confidence that you're going to be able to defend uh, your, your territory. Um, and and finally, I, I did intend to keep my briefs or my, my remarks brief so that we can have some Q and A at the end here. But uh, just to give you an idea of the, the Guardian aircraft, and this is basically a uh, the uh, Predator B or MQ-9 that the Air Force flies today with uh, some uh, modifications like enhanced endurance and, and better avionics. But uh, the endurance at uh, a range of about 350 nautical miles would be 30 hours on station. And if you go out to 750 miles, it gives you about 23 hours on station. So that's a pretty good persistent um, capability. And the last thing I will just go back to slide one here. I should have had this close up as well. But I think everybody's pretty familiar with the iconic look of the uh, aircraft, but that kind of uh, 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 chin extension, I won't say what we actually call it, but its uh, its its, it's uh, it gives you the ability to actually see up and with the right sensors, the right capability, um, you, you can do some uh, tracking, you can do target disc- discrimination and, and really uh, gives you that uh, uh, innovation by integration of existing technologies that, that I think is very effective. And with that, I, I thank you again for the opportunity to speak here today and look forward to the, your questions.
0: Thank you, Chris. Um, we, Chris, what's your schedule right?
3: I'm, I've got a meeting in my office at noon, but I'm good. You're good? I'm, I might just bug out in about 10 minutes or so.
0: Actually, if anybody has any questions now, I'm okay, we can answer Okay, we can break with tradition and see if there are any questions directly to Chris right now, rather than save it for the end. We have a question there. To the, my, my colleague that was supposed to speak here
3: today canceled yesterday, so I had to jump in here, and, but I do have a conflict at noon.
2: Yes, uh, Dave Fitzgerald, retired Foreign Service. Just a quick question. Uh, what about uh, short-range missile defense? capabilities of this system.
4: Uh, c- could you detect and uh, pre defeat a short-range missile attack by North Korea and South
1: Korea?
3: Uh, that, that's a very challenging uh, time and reaction problem. Um, one of the nice things about a, not nice thing necessarily, but one of the uh, features of a ballistic missile defense is that you get that cold, clear sky background. So you get a good track with an IR seeker. If you're doing something low altitude, like a, say a cruise missile or a short range missile, um, you're gonna have ground clutter to deal with and a lot of atmospheric issues. Um, I would say the the tracking system that I'm describing here today that we're working with an MDA is not the best sensor for that. But if you had a, a radar or, um, there are sensors out there in development that, that can address that threat, but, but this is not the solution that we're talking about here. Um,
0: Speaking of missile defense, um, Dr. Okazono mentioned North Korea. Uh, and the North Korea, certainly from a missile defense point of view, represents a grave and highly unpredictable threat environment, one particularly for Japan, uh, since uh, North Korea has in fact fired missiles that have traveled uh, into the Sea of Japan and over Japan as part of its missile tests. So the question arises about how one goes about developing an effect. Is it possible for U.S. and Japan to work together on developing a joint project to provide that kind of important missile ballistic missile defense, one that is perhaps practicable now rather than waiting several years down the road for the development of highly sophisticated technologies to make it possible? Well that's what our next panelist is going to talk about. He's Dr. Len Cavaney, aerospace consultant, former director of space, science and technology for the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization. Uh, Dr. Cavaney has engineering degrees from Georgia Institute of Technology and the University of Alabama. Uh, and since retiring in 1997, as uh, BMDO's director of science technology, he sustains and initiates aerospace research and development through Cavani Tech LLC. So, turn it over to to Dr. Cavani.
4: Thank you, Arthur. 1967, is this the History Channel? No, no. This is, a, this is a high-tech briefing on a subject that Steve Piper and I have been talking about. We're going to talk about the advantages. That's at A, advantages, like in Agile, assured, adaptable, and affordable. This is the problem. We're all aware of that. This is another another thing to be aware of. This is what North Korea has a lot of is 1960s Russian technology. We know Russian technology is good because we entrust our Astronauts to go to the International Space Station on systems that I've had the benefit to see in my travels and multiple travels in Russia and, and time in Bakunur. It's good technology. We, we, have, we have good reason to be concerned about it. The problem, it can deliver large payloads to, to, to Japan. This is the most uh, intricate of the charts I'll have and uh, it shows uh what we have are three trajectories <laughs> to three parts of Japan and the red line is is a boost phase so we have about 200 seconds of boost for a, a typical system that that, that that could be a threat these are these are long-range systems and note I don't use the word ballistic ballistic is like you do the shot put, these systems are always going to be maneuvering, or we have to assume they're going to be maneuvering. So a UAV like the Avenger that uh, was just talked about, at 50,000 feet or about 15 kilometers, firing upward can intercept these systems in, 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 in the boost phase at reasonably high altitudes. Now another aspect of this is it is in the exoatmosphere so with this sensor that we're doing is relatively simple compared to sensing in the uh, a- atmosphere because on those conditions you can uncap the IR detector and it we can use as I'll explain later something as simple as a sidewinder seeker assured can we can affordably Deal with well-known problems, namely, immediately after boost, any co- any country that can deliver a long-range missile can also do very complicated and clever uh, countermeasures. The uh, uh, maneuvering of these simple of these systems is is gotten simpler, so therefore, there's no ballistic tracking of them. And then, of course, is the ability to do the uh, multiple warhead. Also, a concern that if you hit it in the boost phase, you don't have to worry about the wreckage falling on the, on the, on the target. This, this meeting uh, is about science and technology, and I want to add the word from my talk is about applied science and focus technology. Now, I've always been a uh, user of a whole variety of of Sony products, including almost every every one of their TV systems that have come out. And in its day, this was a a very good system, and it it fit the four A's. Now, it was uh, a little bit heavy, Expensive, nine thousand dollars in okay current times, but it, 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 it was forefront. It was manual. It was uh, had 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 to carried on the shoulder. Okay, in the meantime, we've also benefited from several transitions of that. I've had the small handheld camera with the tapes. I thought that was great. I would have had no idea that I could have my pocket camera do high definition TV. Uh, and pay two hundred dollars for it. So that's that's the sort of uh, okay, uh, okay adaptability, uh, affordability, agility that both of our industries know how to do, uh, and the, and the Japanese have mastered it with a whole, with a whole variety of of, uh, of commercial products. We've just heard the previous speaker talk about the advantages of of, of high platforms. You can see from a this is this is an Avenger. Oops, an Avenger. See if I can land on it again. Uh, At uh, 15 kilometers, has a full view of all of the parts of North Korea that we need to see, and a system launching uh, sends up a bright IR plume and a, a lot of secondary effects, which are observable. Now, on the U.S. side, uh, we, too, started with a very uh, cumbersome UAV. The famous Bert Rutan and his uh, scale composites under uh, funding from the oxygenation work for made the Raptor UAV. And you can see how a determined... Uh, Bert Rutan was to get it right. He put Mike Melville on on top of it to make sure everything right on the test flight. Now, now don't be concerned about Mike. He retired about three years ago. He was (laughs) fined. And this is the uh, system. This is what's happened since. Okay, through uh, several generations, including the Global Hawk, then General Thomas has come up with a a UAV that makes what I'm going to talk about, okay, very simple. We'll talk a little bit more about it. I have no tie whatsoever to General Atomics, but I promote their system anyway. Uh, this particular UAV has a lot of what we need. It's has a, a, a part of the um, F-35 system awareness system for uh, detection and tracking. It has a little bit of stealth, but most importantly, it has a large weapons bay that can carry uh, over 1,500 kilograms. And the the type of weapons that can go in that bay, the so-called 500-pound smart smart bomb, the 1,000-pound smart bomb, are larger than the interceptors that I'm going to talk about later on. The, inter- the interceptor for this particular talk is is about the same dimensions as the uh, 500-pound smart bomb, but weighs less. Now, agile and adaptable. We, we think of uh, missiles as uh, uh, hidden in the uh, North Korean hills will be mobile launchers. Okay, that's bad enough. Now we have this threat of things like the Club K, which things look like ordinary shipping containers are really missile launchers. So, okay, the agile adaptable part of a UAV-based system is if it's fired from land, Club K, and we've seen the uh, news of the North Koreans experimenting with underwater. So you have the possibility of being able to move a defense as required. Now the affordable part of it is the, uh, I think, the, the intrinsic beauty. The interceptor is the only hardware you have to have because the General Atomics Avenger does everything else. And this was not the case when we were looking at using Global Hawk for it. it was a, a lot of modification was required. Okay. Okay. Operationally, UAV boost phase intercept is an extension of what the Navy and Air Force know how to do very well, namely air-to-air combat. Uh, okay, a pilot protecting himself will fire horizontally toward the horizon at another uh, aircraft. In this case, a unmanned system is going to be firing upward to the exoatmosphere into a, a boosting system, but. But the technology and logistics are have 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 a lot of parallels. So, another aspect of this is the boost phase intercept can be integrated into the Avenger ISR ops training and and logistics. So, what what happens is you put uh, a, a more mass into the weapons bay, namely, these interceptors are going to weigh less than two hundred uh, uh, kilograms. You could put, say, four of them in the Avenger, and it's not much different than working with the AMRAM type of system. The Avenger, as promoted by uh, uh, General Atomics, is adaptable without any airframe modifications. New technology is not needed. The challenges are integration. This is speaking to the, uh, the interceptor. And in previous talks that Steve and I have been involved in, we've, we've talked about how... The existing technology can be integrated uh, to do this uh, three-and-a-half kilometer or second interceptor that's needed. Now, the kill vehicle is another story. Uh, uh, Companies like uh, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin have a a big, uh, uh, starting with the uh, Star Wars program that I was involved with, ballistic missile defense program, and MDA, in, in miniaturizing the kill vehicles. And uh, so that's that's an area of, of potential cooperation to accelerate this process. Now, this particular uh, defense is a layer. It does not uh, supplant what's being done with systems like Thad and Aegis. I do believe they can offload some of the challenges that Aegis and, and, and Thad face, but it, it, it's it's not a competitor to them. It's uh, it's a complement to them. And, and importantly, it's a near-term capability. Okay, um, Okay. what's actionable here? I welcome uh, other people to do a kind of analysis that my colleagues and I have done. But well, we've concluded that this system is... Close enough, high enough, fast enough to defeat long-range missiles from uh, North Korea. And of course, we're talking about the the forays. Agile is more assured than uh, a ground-based or sea-based system because of the ability of the threats to maneuver and they're not ballistic and the countermeasures are a real problem and it's affordable. This is not much different than operating an AMRAM system in terms of what it takes. There's not a large number of, of new people to be involved. And the life cycle, the life cycle costs uh, of it is, uh, I think, very predictable. Again, going with the AMRAM air to air experience. There's a favorable asymmetry uh, here to, the, to uh, the people who use it because this is a case where these interceptors may be cost maybe three times for an AMRAM. That's, that's quite a, a cost reduction compared to what it's going to cost for one of the larger systems from the ground-based or sea-based systems. And, on, and keep it in mind, only boost phase uh, the intercept assures a missile kill. Now, here's <laughs> the challenge. We need miniaturization. If we can cut the mass of the kill vehicle in half, we cut the mass of the missile in half. So, uh, can Japanese science and technology do for this type of uh, defense what it did to put the HTV, high density TV, in your shirt pocket? I think it can. We've got we've got the carrier. We need the missile. I think that's a ripe area for uh, uh, cooperation and rapid advancement. And I see this as, as two years of the flight demonstration. I don't think there's that much to it, and, and, and I have good experience with programs at three and a half and five kilometers a second, which we did in six months and a year. It can be done. I'm ready for discussion. <coughs> Yes,
2: Yes, I wondered if you had any plans to develop this system that you have uh, as a form of, uh, like, electronic coastal defense for the homeland here in the event this Club K ship gets close to us or a North Korean submarine is close enough to fire a missile. Uh, At the expense of having a lot of aircraft in the air to cover, you know, the West Coast... uh, is kind of serious. Uh, it's a lot bigger than the North Korean region, but uh, the area is vulnerable in, in many ways. What, what do you think of this? Well, that's, that's
4: part of the agility and adaptability, of course, and those are not the only threats. There'll be others that will, will come along. Uh, the Navy Trident system, of course, is a step in that direction. Uh, There's a question of arming these systems. You want, you want them to be able to uh, a, a, a defend once they detect. So, oh, yes, that's good. Yes? Yes, I was wondering if you could uh, address how North Korea could attack that UAV and what could you can do to defend against that. Okay, well, we want to ask the same question about the, 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 the AWACS, the satellites, and the uh, Aegis uh, destroyers. They, they, they too can be attacked. And uh, in the 8A of the Star Wars program, I always enjoyed uh, General Averson saying, uh, attack one of our defenses and, and it's a, you've rung our bell. And then, and then you bring on the all-out assault. Uh, in, in some sense, such an attack should be welcome because we can deal with the problem aggressively. Yes. Oh, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakaya, Japan native, U.S. citizen, uh-huh. member of the Reagan Foundation. Uh, just about every military officers that I talk to, I'm talking about missile defense. Uh,
5: that that system is uh, sufficient, and they're they're pretty much confident. Uh, My question is,
4: should we have something more advanced
5: in order to defend North Korea?
4: I don't take anything away from that. That is an important system. It's uh, what we do have to concern ourselves with the ability of internal warhead being able to maneuver. It's very easy to maneuver. All you have to do is stick a little bit of carbon rod out one side, a little bit of carbon rod out the other side, and you can maneuver it. And then when you do hit it, no matter what it's got in, it's going to still come to all rain down on you. And that's a lot better than having it explode <coughs> above your head. So we, we, we would like to stop it before Thad had to deal with it.
0: -hmm. Thank you, Lynn. One of the other areas of U.S. Japan technological cooperation, and one of the areas in the larger umbrella term of third offset, is the area of information warfare. And the information domain has now increasingly become seen as an important, even vital, battle space. Uh, Dr. H- Okazono had a slide, for example, mentioning uh, the ways in which one deals with threats, such as threats of terrorism, uh, threats such as uh, uh, acts of sabotage. What are the different ways in which one are able to uh, not only keep track of such threats, but also perhaps even to anticipate and to f- and to foresee attacks of this kind uh, by using the kinds of data and information that comes and that flows from the area of information of the information domain, and that's what our next panelists are going to and our last panelists are going to t- discuss. Um, you Should I, shouldn't I introduce you? Wouldn't it that be a nice, nice thing to do so people know who you are and understand how lucky we are to have you here with us? Rajiv Sharma is CEO and chairman of Alchemy Group, alchemy group of companies that includes alchemy analytics and intelligence and alchemy and national security. Mr. Sharma has over 25 years in the information technology industry, founded Alchemy in 1997, and Alchemy has since repeatedly proven its capabilities in complex cybersecurity big data application development and system integration environments it's our pleasure and delight like to have uh, rajiv sharma with us today
5: thank you very much it's very anxious to get up here <laughs> um Actually, the other one is. So good morning, and thank you very much, Dr. Herman, and thank you all uh, for allowing us to speak. Um, I am with Alchemy, and we're going to talk to you a little bit about big data solutions and all-source intelligence. Uh, The biggest challenge we have. Is whenever we say we do big data, we do all-source intelligence. People really have zero idea what we're talking about. Um, but we are at the back end of uh, all the systems and all of the speakers, the technologies the speakers describe today. So our mission is to take information and take data, and coalesce it, and then refine it and upgrade it, so that we can discern some actionable intelligence that allows us to be better prepared or mount a better response. Um, One of the challenges with all-source intelligence is that you literally can adapt it and apply it to any number of scenarios. So for example, the scenario for uh, when Chris was here describing the UAVs, an application of all-source intelligence could be that a sophisticated video analytics system has now interpreted some data coming off a of UAV, it, it's, it hits a threshold point in our system. Our system then immediately turns around and canvasses an on-the-ground uh, on sensor network to see if there is something to be concerned about. It can trigger social media and open source analytics. It can start to pull all that information together into a, into a vital corpus. And then we can send that information up to our security services, which are operating in classified environments. And now they can take the information that they have in their repositories and map it to what is happening on the ground in real time and be able to discern if there is a threat or if there's not a threat. So that's just one application. There are many others. So being a high-tech company, I'm trying to figure out the clicker. (laughs) Ah. So so we are, uh, as Dr. Herman described, we are a technology and consulting company. Uh, We started about 20 years ago. My previous job was I was a client executive at IBM, and I managed uh, federal law enforcement and law enforcement intelligence. Um, We have offices both throughout the United States and throughout other parts of the world. and then we have staff serving in various capacities in many different parts of the world. Uh, we're a privately owned corporation. And our structure is that we have uh, a couple of services organizations where we provide consultants. Um, our government uh, terms a number of our people as subject matter experts, so we have a lot of cap- uh, core competencies in very specific areas. We also have a software division, which is what you're going to see today. Um our focus from uh the when we started the company has always been complex clients, uh large complicated solutions, identification of emerging threats and developing an action plan and a response to those threats. Um, additionally the company uh has a has a pretty uh, extensive uh history of reinvestment. So we actually uh spend a lot of money in R&D and uh develop IP. Uh, for ourselves, um, Dr. Herman mentioned this, but one of our divisions uh, specifically and only focuses on the national security uh, environment in the United States. We have been involved in the national security area since 1997. We have supported a number of relevant and critical programs. Again, our expertise is uh, identifying new and emerging areas, new and emerging threats, new and emerging technologies, and then how to take interesting, innovative technology and apply it to a problem at hand. Uh, We have a lot of uh, experience with law enforcement and intelligence missions. So we have a lot of uh, intelligence uh, tradecraft experience with uh, intelligence and law enforcement tradecraft. And we have an application that both bridges unclassed and classified environments and allows the two environments to work uh, cohesively together. So we all talk about data. And I throw this slide up just to talk about the volume of data that we are are being uh, deluged in. So from the beginning of time to 2003, all the information and all the data that humanity had produced was about 5 billion gigabytes. By uh, 2011, that much data was created in two days. By 2013, that much data was created in 10 minutes. By 2020, Gartner claims that there will be 25 billion Internet of Things. That's 25 billion sensors that are throwing information out. We are awash in data, and the challenge is How do you make sense of that much data? And the problem is that the technologies, the methodologies, and the capabilities that we've had in the past cannot keep up with this just onslaught of data. And that's where the need for new technologies, new approaches, a new tradecraft is necessary. And oh, by the way, this uh, rate of growth is not slowing down at all. It's increasing exponentially. So we took a lot of our experience in working with our clients and, uh, uh, looking at the problems that they have and we've created a tool. It's called SIFT. It stands for Strategic Insights Fusion Toolkit. It's an all intelligence, all source intelligence solution. So it will track open source, social media, news media, enterprise data, sensors, anything. Anything that's digital, we can grab it. And then what we do is we'll merge it together. We'll overlay it so that you start to see all that data how, with what its relevance to each other is to give you a quick snapshot of what's going on. The, the solution is scalable, modular, and open. And it can be configured to any mission parameters. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we work uh, so that the solution allows you to identify a need. I want to know about XYZ and then you can choose sources. The sources can be anything that uh, the client uh, has uh, selected. We'll pull the data in, then we pre-process it. We'll translate it. We'll run natural language processing against it. Now, um, working with Hudson and uh, NATO, we were introduced to a small company in Eastern Europe that has a significant capability in Russian translation and Russian natural language processing. Because the application is modular, we can pop our solution, our our sensors out, and we can put their technology in. We can adapt and integrate any number of technology platforms or solutions into the framework here. The objective is for us to be able to give a uniform way to find data, pre-process data, analyze the data, visualize the data. So the ability for it to be modular and open is very, very powerful. Um, the application can be tailored for whatever workflow the environment the client has, and you can automate it. So you can cert, you can uh, specify specific triggers that will uh, result in certain operations to be done automatically, and then present the findings to the analyst. So the analysts are not burdened with having to hunt down what's going on and then react. The system should be telling you what's going on. Um, We connect to any number of analytics tools, and uh, as was mentioned earlier, we have uh, integrated with IBM's Watson in in addition to many others, but uh, in particular, we work closely with IBM Watson to integrate a cognitive capability So in addition to machine learning, IBM Watson gives us a cognitive capability to again filter through data and present results. So these are just some of the uh, differentiators that we mentioned, I mentioned earlier. What we're gonna do now is actually um, give you a glimpse of what the application looks like, but then we're gonna walk you through a a real live use case that uh, we were asked to perform. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna let Josh uh, present the use case, and at the end of it, I'm gonna ask everybody to give sen- us uh, an estimate of how long it took to process this particular use case. So, I'm gonna turn it over to Josh. By the way, uh, let me introduce Josh. Josh is uh, one of our senior data scientists. And he is, uh, he is uh, the person driving a lot of our development for the SIP tool.
6: Um, So just to start off with, I'm just going to talk briefly about our application of being able to connect into multiple data sources. Um, So this is our homepage looking at key issues, events around the world, looking at how much data we collect. Um, We're able to easily build our own collections. Uh, For example, here I'm looking at uh, some some Russian messaging, uh, which we'll get into a little bit later as to exactly what that is. Uh, we're able to quickly filter the data and then being able to export and visualize it into other applications. So we work very closely with Watson, um, we work very closely with um, their uh, IBM's Analyst Notebook group so we can visualize networks, charts, and things like that. Um, we've also done a lot of work into looking at news media. Um, one of the things we've done is working with a, uh, a partner called uh, the GDEL, it's the largest open source database uh, in the world, uh, sitting on Google BigQuery. Uh, we took their data and kind of worked with it to build these sort of media maps that can look at issues across the globe in life. Um, so we're looking at the last 24 hours of any time ISIS was mentioned in the news in 65 languages. Um, and then plotting the locations of those articles. And we can do that with a lot of different things. Um, for example, we could take a look at earthquakes. And we can start to merge it with actual data. So in this case, the orange are actual earthquakes, and the purple are news articles talking about earthquakes. You will get false positives because it is natural language processing, but it's a way of being able to read the news in a a very different light. Instead of looking at it from how news organizations serve data to you, we can now take a look at how uh, (laughs) looking at an entire big data corpus and then filtering it through it for key issues that are of concern to us. So in this case, looking at earthquakes. Um, and when you're looking at the news data, you know, you also got to think of how the news looks at the world. So things can be a little bit different. Um, you know, if you have a political uh, campaign a spokesperson talking about, you know, defeating ISIS and they're doing it from a speech in North Carolina, it's going to plot locations in multiple places. And so we use the wisdom of the crowd, in this case the news, in order to drive exactly what we're reading. Um, one of the more particular powerful ones we look at is power outages. Um, Power outages kind of tells you a weird story um, because you get those things about storms. Uh, every time a storm comes around, news goes out and says, be prepared for power outages. During, here's the power outages. And after, here's the cleanup from the power outages. Um, but then you get this strange dichotomy that we're noticing there in Turkey, um, this whole area through here. Um, and that's the, all the rolling blackouts and brownouts and the mandatory power outages. Um, that has been like that for probably about two years now. And I would wager a guess that's probably one of the key reasons that um, they had the attempted coup there. Uh, any country attempting to, to get up into the European Union and to be on a major stage needs to have power to its people. Um, all right, so with that, we want to talk about um, uh, using a live case here um, and showing kind of a very unique example here that has uh, a lot of applications. We can do it from up there. So. Switch it over. I always like to inject a little humor into this. our um, trolling under the bridge. So there were, there were three of us who actually uh, did this work uh, in response to a challenge. Uh, it was uh, Par Sharma, myself, and Don Goldsberry. And so uh, really what we were looking for uh, was a challenge scenario of uh, kind of going out and taking a look at um, what was believed to be a faux disaster that was propagated out into social media. So given that... Um, a lot of people went the, the simple route, which was just to say, you know, here's the New York Times article, um, which is devoid of a lot of actual answers to the questions that we needed to ask ourselves. So what we do is we decided to go back and take a look at it with kind of a fresh set of eyes. <coughs> so we look at this one. It's a hashtag Columbian chemicals. It was a big hoax. Uh, they even created these fake news things like on CNN, like, oh, my goodness, everybody should freak out. Um, there's an explosion at a chemical factory in uh Columbia, uh, or not Columbia, in Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, actually got some local governance to respond. Uh, even the company had to respond to say there's nothing here. Um, but it was really interesting to see that this occurs. So we took a look at those accounts, uh, the ones that still existed when we looked at this a year ago, and we built out the relationships, which is that big, huge blob there. Um, that is a very, very core structure for what we call a social network. Um, so these guys use both Russian and English accounts, and they just go ahead and and went out there and used the hashtag Columbian Chemicals. Now, when they were using the English accounts first, when they discovered that it wasn't ramping up, they went and brought in a whole bunch of Russian accounts, and they just tweeted out hashtag Columbian Chemicals, and that was an attempt to try to get this thing to trend. So, we started to look at some of these English accounts, and it was very interesting using um, some of the Watson's technologies, which looks at, um, pattern analysis and looking at the, uh, the actual basis of language, we were actually able to discover that they were most likely using some type of European keyboard. Um, they were not using quotes um, they were using the uh, double accents, which is something that you do in Europe. Um, a lot of the keystrokes that they were using, instead of apostrophes, they were using that button that's right by the tilde key. So it's kind of unique, is that we could start to see and build a pattern of, you know, these guys are probably not real. So we took a look at uh, tracing the hoax and we found out actually the, um, uh, these guys had built their own posting applications, which is something really interesting because that allows us to go and use our application to track them very well. Um, but we also found them hosting onto a, a website which we tracked back to a guy named Mikhail Berchik who runs, um, who's the executive director of a group called the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg. And if anybody ever saw the the New York Times article talking about this, um, they do mention this guy as the possible director. Now, we are able to confirm him because not only did he register the site, he registered the site, uh, he registered a couple other sites and then had a LiveJournal account that he had closed down and deleted everything off of. But if anybody's ever heard of the Internet Archives, it is a wonderful place. (laughs) So we were actually able to get him posting and talking about how it's wonderful to be a troll. Good times. And he's also built these other posting applications, which, of course, we can then track uh, and be able to see every time they post these kind of things out. So um, we could have stopped there, but I never believe in leaving things well enough alone. So we started to look at other things. Um, there's this big, huge expose that goes out um, every couple of months called Material Evidence. It's the other side of the war. Uh, very entertaining. Um, they look at things like uh, the Syrian government's military side of the war and looking at, uh, in Ukraine, the side of the, the uh, rebels and how they're operating. So it's a very strange thing. They actually um, had an expose here in New York City. But every time they have this expose, anywhere in the world, these troll accounts come up and Push this as well. So something they've been trying to uh, to get out the word. Um, so then they tried another hoax attack. This time in uh, Idaho, uh, phosphorus disaster. That was always an entertaining one. Uh, again, they used the same mechanisms, but this time no response. Um, it didn't hit anybody's trending stuff. Nobody got scared. It was all solely the trolls. So nobody cared. Um, Let's go ahead. Uh, they also tried this quick-fire attempt at Texas Jihad right after, um, there was, uh, uh, the shooting, the guy tried to shoot at those cops down there and got killed. Um, very entertaining. They tried to say that these are U.S. government officials who, uh, were ISIS members. Always entertaining. They even created a video with the guy who's obviously Russian trying to speak, uh, um, English. It was, just, it was really bad. Um, So we started to build this timeline, and you see kind of a pattern here. Every couple days they get on, and they start spewing out this kind of information. So a lot of anti-U.S. government, a big theme we see in here, Uh, anti-LGBTQ community, um, also um, uh, anti-minority. So a lot of racist uh, remarks that go into these. And they seem real, so like Ferguson remembers is a hashtag they tried to do at the anniversary of uh, Ferguson, but it actually turned out to be just uh, racist propaganda. Which is, again, something that the Russian media farm likes to push out. So uh, they started getting into in mid-June anti-Hillary Clinton. Um, They started getting into the Anti-Patriot Act, which was kind of odd. We'll keep going here. They keep going for a while. They're still alive today. Um, One of the entertaining ones, No Guns for Criminals, they actually created a uh, a survey on uh, the White House's, um, uh, not survey, a petition on the White House's website. I'd love to see who actually did that. (laughs) It's like 5,000 signatures when we clicked on this. (laughs) Uh, They try, in the wake of the mass shooting incident in Oregon to create this one called Gun Violence Oregon. Uh, Again, it's a very racist ploy. Uh, So it draws you in because you're thinking, oh, this is about gun violence. But in actuality, it was talking about how um, uh, that there were um, uh, basically minorities are the cause of our problems, and so they shouldn't have guns. And so... Um, when we get into that uh, no guns for criminals, that's exactly what the, the writ of this petition says, is that minorities were the cause, and so they shouldn't have guns. An absolutely ridiculous kind of thoughts. Um, they built their own fake news accounts. They got really entertaining and got some people into them, like uh, Best USA Today. Um, so if, you, if you're looking for USA Today, and this might show up. and There was actually a couple celebrities who retweeted from this. It is a fake news account. Um, they generate real news, so some of it looks real, but uh, the articles are all from the Russian social media. Uh, Josh, you may yep. want to tell how many
5: fake news accounts you've found.
6: Oh, well, I mean, today, I mean, it's probably around about four or five thousand. But they and they come up with like these really creative ones, like Houston Online, which doesn't actually exist, or the Washington, um, like Washington Today, and other nonsense accounts. So they get really creative in some of these these methods. Um, so a typical account. Um, I'm sorry very, to interrupt
5: Josh one more time yeah. 4 or 5,000 fake news accounts how many trolls did you all
6: find oh we'll get there
5: Okay. Yeah.
6: See, see there's there's a difference between how many trolls and how many trolls by language Right. and that one plays into a big role uh, so this is a temporal account that was used here in the United States uh, it looks real enough uh, the first couple of tweets they show a bunch of pictures um, that is not Alex Carr, that is a Russian troll who's basically taken somebody's Facebook pictures, posted it on there, and then tries to solidify themselves as Alex Carr as being a real person in the United States. Uh, Also of note, the entertaining thing, if you notice his location, it says USA. I don't know how many of us put our location as USA, but no, I don't. Um, a typical Russian account, they're not used in every attack, uh, every hashtag campaign. They do propagate a lot of stuff on behalf of Russian media, so they do a lot of retweets and restoring of uh, Russia Today and things like that. Um, so as an example of mapping out those accounts, so on the left we're looking at roughly about um, probably about 10,000 U.S. accounts in this sample, and on the right we're looking at about 8,000 Russian accounts. Um, so they build these by language sets. Um, there's very few correlation between the language sets, but there's correlation within them. Um, so far to date, we've discovered them in English, Russian, uh, Finnish, French, German, um, British English, and I think I've seen a few in Japanese. Um, but they did get involved in things like Brexit and things like that, so very interesting troll mount, uh, farm. So we take a look at an account here, for example, Ted Connolly, just to prove that uh, we're right in our assessment. Uh, this is a picture; they uh, kind of just randomly grab pictures because if they had been paying attention, this guy is wearing a name tape. <laughs> so, very easy to recognize that this is not Ted Connolly. We go find his LinkedIn. It's Travis Miner. Um, looking at these kind of accounts and how they map out together, you know, a lot of them like to, to mention real Donald Trump. Um, they get into the best USA Today, the fake news, and then even a claimed Russian propaganda account like Cold War 20. Very entertaining accounts. Uh, let's skip over that one. So keeping tabs on the network, uh, we can do a couple things. One, as I mentioned before, is those posting apps. So they create their own unique posting apps. So we just discover them whenever they turn them on. And then we just watch those. Um, and then you get everything. Um, when you start looking at other things, um, we start looking at keywords. We like to look at the uh, the fake news accounts. So as these things go up and down, we can kind of keep track on them. And they're, they're pretty prolific, and they're getting better every day. Uh, skip over some of these here. Um, so basically our assessment here, just to kind of hash on these. So the internet research agency is most likely controlled by the Russian government. We actually tracked them as part of a holding group, which is uh, run by Putin's chef. Um, <laughs> Can't make this
2: stuff
6: up. Uh, so most likely conducting an information operations campaign. And this is where like uh, a lot of people differ. So Because we were looking at this in 2015, so this is before the election. The key thing that we found, and it still remains consistent today, is, is that they're not trying to say yay or nay over anybody else. So When they got involved in our political campaigns, it wasn't about propagating... Uh, president-elect over uh, Secretary Clinton, it was more about driving a wedge between the people and the government to create distrust and foment uh, uh, that distrust between the people and the government. And it was very consistent, as we saw throughout all these individual campaigns as they went through. Um, we also wanted to see that they did a few of these that were probing campaigns, trying to elicit responses. Um, they're trying to get us to respond, and, you know, boy, did we respond recently. <laughs> um but they're still failing. Um, so despite all this, you know, they still fail to uh, influence reactions. So while they're able to, to create noise that drives that wedge, they're still failing ultimately at the end of the day. Uh, now just as a test, because uh, this assessment was from 2015, I, I ran a test this morning and was taking a look at some of the... Uh, these accounts today um, over the last month or so they have ramped up how much they're putting out there and they're trying to solidify their bona fides now in numerous social communities so one of our key pieces of research here with alchemy is looking at um, not just looking at you know people talking about disasters or you know key news events but looking at the actual social communities that form bonds within the community and so we looked at these and um, you'll find several of them who are still doing these hashtag campaigns. You'll see a bunch of them now that are getting involved in key communities. So um, one of them looks like he's a Black Lives Matter. Uh, one of them looks like he's a, a, a pro-Trump supporter. And so they create these these little communities and then they try to submit their, their bona fides. And it looks like, uh, from my standpoint at the very least, um, based on what we've seen in the past, is that they're doing that to ramp up for something else. So they're ramping up each of these communities, building these bona fides as actual people within these communities in order to try something else. And what that else is, we don't know yet. But it's definitely looking like they're trying something. And that's within the last month or two. So So, Josh, you were gonna tell the number of number of trolls. Yeah. <laughs> because it's important. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the English accounts, you're looking at about sixty to 70,000 um, at any given time. Active, you're probably looking between thirty to 40,000 active at any given time. In the last couple months, they've been ramping up, putting out probably about 1,000 um, 1, posts a day. Or not a day, uh, 1,000 posts a month. Um, for the ones that we saw in Britain, we saw probably about 15,000 in Britain that were um, pushing Brexit. Um the post-attacks in Belgium, so we saw French and Finnish accounts, that was roughly about ten to 12,000. So it's it's a large scale. But a, a lot of the research that's been done so far has been looking at the English accounts. And so now we're getting into the whole other language accounts, and it's a whole other world. And there's just so much more that we're just not seeing. And this is just one troll farm. There are multiple troll farms out there. So um, so one question that uh, Rajiv had asked is, you know, there were three of us locked in a room working on this, um, so he had asked how long, how long did it take? Does anybody
5: have a sense of how long it took to run the analysis, r- trace down the accounts, trace down the systems, trace down the ownership, looking at everything, finding 60,000, 70,000 trolls? How long would it take to do something like that? Any any ideas? One hour. One hour? One hours? Are Uh, No, it it took two days.
6: It took us two days, um, and that includes the PowerPoint.
5: (laughs) (laughs) But in comparison, uh, we've uh, spoken to folks uh, in our government, and their estimate to do this was weeks, not days. So... The point of uh, all source intelligence and big data is to be able to coalesce information very, very rapidly, very quickly, and be able to decipher what you need to decipher and pull out whatever is the actionable
6: intelligence. And one last thing is a key component of big data is being able to recognize patterns and then applying those patterns to other problem sets. So we now have a good pattern, a base, for what these guys are doing. And I wouldn't put it past for copycats to exist in the future. As we get into IO campaigns, we do know that uh, the PRC likes to do things, you know, ad hoc as they need them when they do operations. So, should there be something, you know, uh, an operation they're trying to push, this would be part of an IO campaign. And whether they use this exact method is uh, up to them, but it is something that they might try to employ in the future. Any questions? Oh, question. Yes.
3: Who do you pass this information on to? Do you pass it on to the government? Do you pass it on to agencies that shut them down
6: or that uh, do counter uh, articles or, or whatever? I mean, to date, you know, we passed it on to the to who gave us the challenge scenario. Uh, We've presented several times to uh, other individuals to include Hudson Institute as a, as a think tank. Um, but we have all the raw data Um provide it as, as people need it, as people want it. Um, as far as action steps go, I mean, that's a, that's a whole another question. Um, there's a lot of things that we could do, but it takes uh, involves risk and whether or not you're willing to incur such risk. Because um, there's things of, you know, like the current theme of exposing these guys, that they exist, uh, how would you go about doing that? I'm, I'm a fan of poking. So you could just poke them all at once and say hi. Um, it exposes them and shuts them down Um, there's a lot of other things you could do but the the key thing, the first thing you've got to do is be able to create a system using big data to be able to identify um, at any given time which ones are out there and now we take the next steps and determine how much risk you want to take on any other questions? thank you are there
0: any questions for our other panelists, for Dr. Hokazono or for Len Cavani? Yeah.
2: Uh, basically, a general question to Dr. Hoke-Zoo. Um Perhaps you're aware of uh, the press uh, constantly wondering about cruise ships entering the Arctic, and uh, there's no way to provide assistance to them in the event uh, of, you know, a ship malfunction or a crash or some other unforeseen emergency. And I wondered, uh, we've been exposed to these uh, new techniques of technology, the uh, hydrofoil vessel, uh, which was uh, shown in a photo, uh, a large, you know, naval-type ship. I wondered whether this could be developed like for the Coast Guard. They're wondering about icebreakers to assist, you know, a stricken ship. But, well, why not, if it's summer, when these vessels would be there when the ice is clear, maybe they could get there more quickly than, than another vessel to some remote spot that where you know help wouldn't otherwise be provided. Uh, perhaps there's some other way that help could be provided, and the press and the cruise lines would feel a little better. The, the other alternative we saw in the first vessel is to have a, a Coast Guard vessel lead the way for the ship uh, through all these narrow island areas.
1: Thank you for uh thank you for questions about our uh, research uh, project for the uh Bajha busels. Uh as you stated that, that, that this uh, 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 this type of the buses uh, has a, a, a unique features that uh, it also has the capability of the high speed capability and on the wide wide thick uh, capabilities, uh, that means that we, uh, we can, so that we can, uh, uh, uh load up uh, lots of uh, aircraft on that, such a large deck. So we uh, anticipate that that kinds of the, uh, uh, new, uh, the new uh, designed buses will be useful, though, uh, could be used for uh, maybe that multiple uh, purposes, uh, as you stated, the uh, Coast Guard and the other enforcement is one of the application areas. And also that uh, looking at the self-defense force uh, purposes, that this type of this, uh capacitor uh, is uh, uh, useful for the future multiple uh, missions of the hawser defense Force, uh, mainly the maritime defense force uh, such as peacekeeping operations and uh, not uh, for, from ranging from the peacekeeping operations um operations and to the uh, uh, uh uh, actual combat, uh, warfare system. So, right now, the summary, that we not identified, clearly identified the purpose of this uh, application areas of this kind of vessels, but we looking at see the, uh, much multiple purpose of that kind of vessels. So, uh, it's a one of the, uh, technical, uh, I think one of the technical solutions for the future vessels patients we can foresee. Thank you very much.
0: Question here, and then a question there, too. Here, in, the lady with the red sweater, and then we'll go over there.
5: My name is Mary Rose de Valadares. I manage the International Energy Agency's Hydrogen Research Program. And I have another question for Dr. Okazano. This question is about your cooperation with METI and NETO on energy technologies that may have defense implications. Are you working with NEDO on technologies in hydrogen and fuel cells and other other advanced technologies?
1: Uh, of course, that uh, we have a lot of discussion with NEDO in Japan, the New Energy this, uh, uh, Development Organization under the METI. Uh, but uh, that right now, the uh, cooperation with NEDO uh, between us, uh, is, uh, is limited to the information exchange, so we cannot study the actual, uh, projects such as a fewer batteries, as you mentioned
5: right now.
0: And then one more question. The gentleman in the, in the back there.
5: Hi, thank you. Uh, another question for Dr. Hokozono. Uh, Mark Zellinger with Defense Daily. Um, you mentioned earlier about your, uh, Government's plan to buy the V-22 Osprey. Uh, just recently, a U.S. Uh, Marine Corps uh, MV-22 crash-landed near Okinawa, uh, and that apparently created some local concerns. Has that incident prompted the government to reconsider its plans, or um, are you still planning to go ahead and buy, uh, last I heard, 17 aircraft?
1: Uh, sorry the, to answer the, the, your questions. Is uh, may, Maybe the beyond my uh, responsibilities. At, uh, but uh, in my personal view that uh, the uh, so, uh, Japanese government and the US government will soon find a very uh, appropriate solutions for overcome this kind of uh, very sadly uh, accidents. Uh, actually speaking that uh, but when I introduced the U.S. Marine Corps in Japan that introduced a V-20 Osprey for the first time that uh, – at that time, I saw that Okinawa uh, prefecture people raised a very concerned about that uh, safetyness of b 22 uh, Actually speaking, at that time, that we are working – as a technical people, we are working closely with uh, operational people to, to, to make sure the safety nest of the B-22 and the support of this, uh, by the support of the U.S. Uh, government and the DOD. That's why that we, uh, we can, we are very, uh, uh optimistic to, 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 to mitigate these kind of this issues.
0: Well, as you've noted, begun to notice, we're running a little bit over time. This always happens with interesting conferences and fascinating panels like our like our our last one. Um, so I think what we're going to do, in the interest of keeping up with time, and also because uh, member one of the members of our China panel is going to have to uh, leave uh, early, is we're going to uh, move lunch to one o'clock. Um, and commence our China panel uh, in about three minutes. That'll give us time to finish that up. And then for lunch, I think we're going to have to also sort of truncate the lunch hour so that we can get back here for 1.30 because our afternoon panels are going to be, I promise you, uh, at least as fascinating, at least as interesting as our morning panels have been. Uh, I'd like to thank our panelists one more time for their time and effort uh, and uh, look forward to our next panel uh, and seeing you here too. Thank you.